KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. the delay with this podcast, but I've spent the last three weeks on the road going to WonderCon, TCM Film Festival, and Star Wars Celebration. I'm not complaining, but I just didn't have as much time or internet connectivity as I'd hoped for. But finally, I can now share with you the latest podcast, and it's going to take you on a journey across the galaxy. Saturn has nine moons, the greatest of which is Titan. Titan is only slightly smaller than Mars. Titan is the only moon in the solar system that has an atmosphere. Forty years ago, Stuart Gordon adapted Kurt Vonnegut's novel The Sirens of Titan to the stage. Now, Sacred Fools Theatre Company in Los Angeles is reviving that adaptation and finding it surprisingly topical. Everyone now knows how to find the meaning of life within himself. But mankind wasn't always so lucky. Less than a century ago, men and women did not have easy access to the puzzle boxes within them. They could not name even one of the 53 portals to the soul. Jim Crack religions were big business. Cinema Junkie Podcast is thrilled to take you on another theater field trip to look at how Sacred Fools unearthed Gordon's 1977 play and mounted this new production. Gordon is probably best known for directing such cult horror films as From Beyond and the classic Reanimator. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life, and not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. But initially, he worked in theater before turning to a career in film. A few years back, he created a brilliant musical adaptation of Reanimator called Reanimator the Musical. Of course he's dead. The dosage was too large. You killed him! No. I gave him. I became an avid fan of that show and followed it all the way to Scotland for the Fringe Festival. You can check out my podcast about that fabulous show in Cinema Junkie episode number 41. 
But back in 1977, he adapted and then directed a stage version of Vonnegut's The Sirens of Titan for Chicago's Organic Theater. He even worked with Vonnegut on that adaptation, and the novelist insisted that he not be overly faithful to the original source material. In fact, Gordon recalled that Vonnegut suggested he treat the material as if the author had been dead for 10 years. For Sacred Fools, Ben Rock directs the new production. Rock and Gordon previously collaborated on the ovation-nominated cannibalistic love story Taste for Sacred Fools. I included my interview about Taste in the Cinema Junkie Podcast 113 on gourmet cannibals. So in case you can't tell, I love Stuart Gordon's work. So make an effort to check out this new show that runs through the first week of May. Sacred Fools describes the play as a visually dazzling and darkly humorous science fiction epic about what happens when Malachi Constant, the richest man in the world, loses everything and sets out on an unbelievable journey through space and time and discovers nothing less than the meaning of life. The play also features Malachi's wife Beatrice and Winston Niles Rumford, a former millionaire who now with his dog has become a collection of particles ever since he drove his spaceship into a time tunnel or a chronosynclastic in Fundabulum. I think that's how you say it. Now he materializes at regular intervals, and he has a plan to have his wife and Malachi marry to create a son who will play a role in the universe. And oh, did I mention there's also a Martian invasion of Earth? Earth's casualties were... 461 killed, 223 wounded, none captured, and 216 missing. Mars casualties were 149,315 killed, 446 wounded, 11 captured, and 46,634 missing. At the end of the war, every Martian had been killed, wounded, captured, or been found missing. As much butchering was done by amateurs as by professionals. Mr. and Mrs. Lyman R. Peterson of Boca Raton, Florida, remember. Sacred Fool's production of The Sirens of Titan is wildly imaginative. Take actor Jesse Merlin. He had to use a crazy puppetry rig to play the decapitated Dr. Hill in Reanimator the Musical. And he has to do some major contortions in The Sirens of Titan to play his new character. And the play does boast some very clever staging that takes full advantage of the intimate theater space to bring you into the world Gordon and Vonnegut have created. After seeing Sirens of Titan on opening night, I went backstage to the dressing room to speak with Stuart Gordon, Ben Rock, and Alicia Conway Rock, who was one of the rotating artistic directors at Sacred Fools when Sirens was selected. So here's a discussion of bringing Vonnegut's Sirens of Titans to life for a new millennium. Stuart, so this is a revival of an adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut that you did 40 years ago. So what's it like returning to something like that? You know, I had forgotten half of it, you know. Uh, it, it, it's great. It's, you know, as an old friend that's come back, it seems as fresh as ever. That's the thing that's the most amazing to me. Something that's 40 years old is usually like, you know, an antique. But this, you know, Vonnegut is... He's so far ahead of him, uh, of the rest of us, that uh, you know he's never going to get old. For this production, did you make any changes to the adaptation that you had done? Did anything change for this one? I did a little bit. I um, Ben and Elisa um, had some really good suggestions. Uh, mainly, it had to do with fleshing out the character of Beatrice a little bit more, you know, giving her a little bit more to do, and. Um, I think those are, you know, they're good, good ideas. I'm very happy with the changes. 
And Ben, what made you want to bring this back to take something that was 40 years old and put it on right now? Uh, well, The Sirens of Titan is, has always been one of my favorite books. I read it when I was about 18 years old. And it was around that time, it was maybe a year or two after that, that I found out that The Organic had done an adaptation of it. And it was something that was on my on my radar all these years. But when I when I found out about it, you know, I was in Orlando, Florida and, you know, like, you know, I, I there was no Internet. I didn't know how to how to find it. But then, uh, you know, uh, over, over, you know, about three, three and a half years ago, I worked with Stuart on a play that he directed called Taste. And uh, I asked him about it then. It, uh, I, I really wanted to see it. To me, uh, it is it is kind of a timeless story that really hit. Like when I saw it, you know, Stuart always talks about kind of the uh, the World War II overtones and stuff like that. I was reading it in the early '90s, and I didn't that that stuff wasn't a, what hit me about it. But like learning about that kind of kind of deepened it for me. But I thought that it had you know really universal. The, the themes of it were, were very universal and, and as uh, oversharing, as kind of an avowed atheist, uh, there's still a need to feel like you're a part of something bigger, you know? And so to have a, a play that both refutes and underscores religion somehow in a, in a weird way, it kind of speaks to our to our need for, for a higher purpose, even if there really isn't one. And that's part of one of the major themes that runs through the whole thing. So uh, just finding the script was kind of a detective story, just, just getting it from the archive and then seeing it and being like, oh my God, there's some, there's something no, nobody's done. I've never seen a piece like this in theater. You mean you didn't keep a copy of it? I couldn't find it. It was really true. You know, and I, I said, I think there's one in the Chicago Public Library in their archives and sent Ben off looking for it. And he had to go through, jump through a lot of hoops. Both of you guys did. Alicia mm -hmm. had to deal with the Vonnegut estate who had completely forgotten that this ever was done, you know, <laughs> and, you know, uh, then uh, there's also, there's always someone who wants to do a movie of this or television series or something. So it was like trying to get them to agree to let this old script come back to life. When you originally adapted it, what was it about the book that appealed to you? Because Vonnegut does seem to be very difficult to adapt. Well, Vonnegut, you know, got to work with Vonnegut, got to meet him, and that was the thing. You know, he, you know, when we when he first showed up, we were being very, very, you know, careful to do everything exactly as it was in the book. And he said, he said, I, uh, you know, I wrote a book. You're making a play. You got to go. You got to be ruthless. You got to just cut the, you know, this, get rid of this, move that, you know, combine these characters. Uh, you know, you don't need all of this stuff. You know, blah 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 blah. And it was like, uh, he was absolutely. Um, he said, "You've got to pretend that I've been dead for ten years." Was the line he said, and uh, you know, I've never heard a writer ever say anything like that before. Uh, you know, most of them are so worried if you change a comma. You know, and, uh, you know, David Mamet would, like, kill himself or kill you, you know, if you changed any of his words. But um, Vonnegut was just the opposite, and it was such a pleasure to work with him. And uh, now he has been gone for 10 years. You know, I don't have to pretend anymore, and I really miss him. And it was uh, uh, great to be working on this because I kept sort of feeling like he was there sort of whispering in my ear, you know, and, and, in, and, and in Ben's, you know, he's, uh, you know, the work is 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 brilliant, and and he's still with us. You both mentioned how fresh 
Vonnegut's work still feels. Is there something in particular right now in the current political climate we have? <laughs> what could you be angling for? <laughs> that makes it especially appropriate for why you picked it. When I proposed the show, uh, we were not in our current political situation. So that wasn't necessarily what was driving me. But I have to say that once I found, once our current political situation arrived as it did, all of us working on it were constantly finding parallels to that kind of stuff. And, you know, we talked about trumping up Rumford, for instance, or even Malachi. You know, like Malachi at the beginning of the play is, uh, you know, this this guy who was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, you know, and that sounds a little familiar. But, uh, you know, ultimately I, I tried personally to let the story be the guide and to try to stick to what Vonnegut did. And if people want to, if, 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 it, if it finds resonance in that way, then that's awesome. But it's not, uh, I, I would rather do that than, than try and nail it and, 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 kind of, and kind of make it so specific to our time that five years from now when people look at pictures of it, they're like, you know, it, they, like, I feel like I hope this is a play that could be produced 40 years from now again, frankly. And for you, was there anything particular you saw in, in this version that... You know, as Ben said, when we did the original production of it, we really made it about World War II, which is what Vonnegut was thinking about when he wrote the book. He said nobody got it. He said he was amazed that we actually, you know, realized that Rumford is Roosevelt. And, uh, you know, the idea that anyone thinks that World War II, you know, was uh, a crazy, you know, unjust war... You know that that attitude is not is disappeared, but uh, you know Vonnegut. You know he wrote um, Slaughterhouse Five, which essentially is the same book, but making it really clear as to what he's talking about. That he is talking about the war, uh, because no one when he did, did Sirens, Sirens was only the second book that he ever wrote, and and people just didn't get what exactly he was going for. Now it seems to be so much about what's going on. And people, I've, you know, it was funny, even before Trump was, you know, president, people kept talking about how Trump seemed like a Vonnegut character. Yeah. I think that in these days of Trump that we're going to be seeing a lot more Vonnegut, something tells me. Old comfort. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to get the comfort where you can, you know, <laughs> these days. The... Production was very clever in terms of a lot of you guys. I mean, it was a very like busy production in terms of things are moving in and out, and there's all sorts of activity going on. How how much of that was kind of written into your actual play, and how much did you guys bring to this particular production? Like, what's the mix of that? Well, I mean, uh, we we pretty much did Stewart's script. Uh, you know, as Stewart said, he he did a, a couple of revisions for us and kind of looked at stuff, basically putting some more stuff back from the book into it. But it was really all very much in Stewart's in Stewart's style, and uh, we just wanted to kind of keep a, a moving stage picture. And our um, our set designer, Christina Lobata, figured out a way, I think, to to turn you know a, uh, the uh, the planes of Mars into a spaceship, and like you know there there were just and 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 we wanted it to surround the audience too, but that was really just me looking at Stuart's script and realizing there's two scenes where there's like a clergy talking to talking to a congregation, and there's two scenes of a teacher, and there's one scene of a demonstration, and like there's there's all these things that 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 can surround the audience, and to me it's. Uh, uh, it, it's not it's not uh, confrontational, but it's in your face. Like he he, and I feel like that's Vonnegut. What I what I love about Vonnegut, and I think what makes him hard to adapt, is that so much of it is about his authorial voice. But I think in Stewart's adaptation, he kind of managed to contain that voice and and put it in there. 
and and created in such a way that it does feel like it's sort of being told to the audience in so many places. I don't know if that that that's part of what I love about the the way he adapted it and the way that he kind of found and and I think that that's what again what kind of makes it universal. You know, I think it's like in a way it's like Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare. One of the things you know he was writing movies before there were movies. Essentially, you know, he's having big battle scenes. He's having you know we're jumping from France to England. We're all you know it's. It's not like it's you know now most theater is like a, you know, takes place in a kitchen, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is you know we're going to other planets. We're going through half the solar system in this show. Yeah, but we also like ha- have because we're doing this in a very 1950s 1960s sci-fi style. Like we were able to have like the saucer crashing and stuff like that, which we're able to pull off with lights and stunts, you know, lights and choreography. And it feels a little Star Trekky, but the style we were going for was very. Earth versus flying saucers, day the earth stood still in terms of, of the design aesthetic. And I think that that kind of action lends itself to that. So it, it it's not a get out of jail free card and it takes a lot of work to kind of stage it. But, but you know, it also enabled us to kind of just keep keep the story chugging along because it's a busy, busy story. When you think when you sit back <laughs> and think about all the things that happen in the story, there's a lot going on. And you're putting the actors to work. That's what I like, too. <laughs> I mean, the whole sequence where the saucer is crashing and, and they're sliding on, the you know, the hanging on for dear life you know you really get a sense of the danger which is you know it's all the actors who are creating that yeah that was brilliant yeah i love that (laughs) you are a filmmaker as well as somebody who's worked in theater did it ever occur to you to also try to do this as a film well i have to tell you that i was once summoned to san francisco to meet with a guy who had bought the film rights and it was jerry garcia of the grateful dead and he was planning on making a movie, and he wanted to get uh, Bill Murray to play Malachi Constant, you know, the the richest man in the world, which would have been fantastic. And he and he showed me a lot of the production designs that they had been doing, and it was it was great. He had the rights for, I think, you know, a dozen years or more, but unfortunately, it never got made. Now there's been talk of TV miniseries or this or that, and it's just it is a very, you know, it's a big production, you know, to do this thing. You know, uh, if you did it as a movie, this would be a, a hundred million dollar movie, easily. What was it about? What is it about theater that you enjoy that's different from film? What do you? What can you do on the stage that's different from film? Well, what I like about the theater is that it puts the audience to work. The audience is, the, you know, the imagination of the audience is what you're really engaging, and what they're going to do is, it, what they create. We all create together as a group, you know, the actors and the audience is something far better than any individual or a movie could do. Movies, I think, are very, for the most part, very passive. You know, you sit in a chair and watch it. And movie, theater, you're, you're with these people. You're in it. And, uh, you know, I like a lot of Ben staging where he's surrounding the audience, you know, with, with, with the action. And you guys worked together on Taste, which was also, and both of these venues are small, very intimate. And when you talk about being in your face, it's, you know, you're like 10 feet away from the actors. Uh, Talk a little bit about kind of the the different way that you engage people with Taste versus this one, because Taste was very (laughs) intimate and small with just, I think it was only two actors, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, and you could smell the cooking as well. <laughs> well, that's the thing, again, with theater is that you can, you know, smelling, you know, using the other senses, engaging those other senses, you know, is really 
I love that about theater, that you're able to do that. You know, you're all in the same space, breathing the same air. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes the audiences forget that the actors are really right there in front of them. And I always like to remind them. I, I love it when the, when the audience, you know, the actors touch the audience members and they jump out of their seats. You know, they're not expecting that. Well, taste was very much in your face in oh, yeah. a very surprising way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This has uh, far fewer penises were eaten in the production of this play. Uh, still some, though. Um, yeah, no, I mean, well, I mean, taste was, uh, I was one of the artistic directors at Sacred Fools when uh, my friend Janelle Riley gave me the script for taste and told me that Stuart was attached to direct it. And it was one of the best scripts I've ever personally read to this day. I, it was, I, I could not put it down. And the idea of, of Stuart directing it, you know, again, knowing, knowing of his work and knowing who he was going back to the organic, but also as a, as a giant raving horror fanboy, knowing his work from reanimator and stuff like that, the idea of getting to, uh, work, work directly with him and, and see how he put together a show like that, which was like just a magnificent piece of, of choreography and suspense and, and, uh, and, and really touching and brilliant and, and actually um, emotional, you know, like a play that, that when you just, when people would describe it, they would always talk about, you know, the cannibalism and stuff, but really it was a relationship piece and how Stuart worked on that. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a huge learning experience for me and an inspiration to, to see somebody with that kind of history as a director, as a, as a theater director, who's been doing it longer than I've been alive. And, uh, and it, and it, I mean, it, honestly, one of the best experiences of my life in theater, just seeing him work on that. Um, you know what are the similarities between that and this? Uh, you know, I mean, they're 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 pretty different. <laughs> well, although there is, a, I think this is a very emotional show too. I think this I think this show is very you know has a tremendous amount of heart and so did taste. It was weird. It was you know, both of those plays did really kind of reach reach you emotionally. Oh, that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, and and to me, like the emotional, the places where the book got me emotionally are the same places where I think that this that this play does. The thing about taste that I thought was really surprising, though, was like the the scene everyone would talk about in which the thing was consumed. When I read that script, I was like, there will be rioting in the streets, and actually, it was the most dependable laugh in the whole play. <laughs> and by the time that happened, everybody was okay with it. It was really, really interesting how that went how that went down. The way that we're structured. Um our artistic directors are on board for a term, and then we are we move over, and it's all an elected position. So, you know, as Ben said, he was one of the artistic directors when Taste was selected, and then I was taking a term um, as one of the artistic directors when this show was selected. So, the show was one of the ones that I was particularly excited about. And what was it about it that appealed to you that made you want Sacred Fools to be producing it? I've always been a Vonnegut fan since I was a teenager, and um, Ben had been talking to me about the the show um, and his excitement about reading the script because he knew about it, but nobody had read the script. And when he finally got it, I actually read it um, before he did, which was kind of funny. It, it showed up, and through a variety of um, weird circumstances, he ended up handing me the script, and I read it really fast. And he popped into the room after I'd read it, and I said, it's good. It's good. Like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you adapt this. I don't mm-hmm. know how you do that. But I read it and I was like, this is how, who knew? So when I, when I read the actual script, I was like, you know, this could be done. And that's exciting. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually see how you could adapt Vonnegut and then to actually see it come forward was like, well, I think we should really talk about doing this. Now, Sacred Fools and Stuart have partnered before. So what is it about Stuart that you guys like? Well, What's not to like about Stuart? We, um, I think that Sacred Fools is good at, I think, I think 
every company has kind of a, a flavor to it. And I think that the flavor of our company tends to be we're really good at kind of zany, quirky, crazy wild ride types of shows. But it also works well if there's a, a certain amount of like humor and craziness, but then there's also real heart in it. And I think that um, that's something that that balance is something we do really well. And I think there's something about Stuart that apparently he sort of shares that <laughs> that uh, that flavor or something. And it just seems to work out. I mean, every I think that it's a pretty common feeling around the company that Taste is one of many people's favorite shows that we've ever done. So it just seems like a good fit. And I know that when I was sitting on the um, artistic director team, because there were three of us um, serving at any given time, when I was sitting on the team, I think we all valued our relationship with Stuart. And we all felt like it was just a really good fit. And Vonnegut also, generally speaking, his voice is a really good fit. So the idea that there was a really reasonable adaptation of a Vonnegut show that also would take advantage of our relationship with Stuart, which we thought was really great, just seemed like, obviously, we're going to do this, right? And for a theater company, what are the challenges nowadays of trying to get people into a theater? There's so much competition for you know, people's attention and so many different ways to get entertainment and download it in your home. How difficult is it to get people in and what kind of things are you looking for to try and pull them in? Well, I mean, I think that we're always looking for, you know, a quote unquote star, something that people would have would have known of. And I sort of feel like in, in this instance, we kind of have two with Kurt Vonnegut and Stuart Gordon and and, and uh, related in different ways. You know, like Stuart has a, a giant fan base and also his reanimator musical was a humongous hit. But I also think that people who who really know you know, where he came from, they know that he, you know, he came up with David Mamet. You directed the first David Mamet adaptation ever, right? Or, the, excuse me, first David Mamet script ever, right? Well, we did the first professional production of Mamet's work and, and helped Mamet shape sexual perversity into the play that it, it is now. Um, but um, I, I like Sacred Fools because I, it reminds me of my days at Organic. It really does. I also like the things that they do that, you know, they have this whole thing that they do on weekends, the the serial killers it shows where anybody in the company comes up with an idea for something and they can do it on a Saturday night like it was it started 11 o'clock or something and um, if the audience likes it they vote to keep it going and they do the next part of it the next week and uh, I love stuff like that you know it's like you know Peter Brook you know who's one of my you know heroes says all you need is a, an empty stage and an actor and you've got theater you don't need much. Um, and I think that's what makes it so much fun. People are probably familiar with your filmmaking career. Can you give me just a little bit of background on your how you got into theater and what it was? Well, I, just, you know, I was a theater student at the University of Wisconsin because I couldn't get into the movie class. And I thought, well, it, should, it would be nice to learn something about acting. And I got so hooked on theater that I ended up doing it for the next 15 years and realizing that, you know, I had thought that theater was sort of bad movies. And then I realized that theater has the ability to do so much more than a movie does. Tell me a little bit about the theater company that you started. Well, it was started by my wife, Carolyn, and myself, um, the Organic Theater Company. And uh, we set it up, you know, this was not a waiver type situation. We paid our actors right from the beginning, even though we weren't paying them much, but it was enough for them to be able to devote their energy entirely to theater. They didn't have to, you know, drive cabs or wait tables or any of that stuff. And um, we would try to keep an ensemble together, and 
and we would f and we focused on doing original work. That was really the way it started. Does the and Sacred Fools kind of reminds you of that? Is that <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. And what you talked a little bit about what you kind of think defines the company. What, how would you define uh, kind of the kind of work that you're looking for and the kind of theater that you're looking to produce? Well, I, I think that when Sacred Fools is firing on all cylinders, we do pretty carnivalesque work. That would be the word I would use. Um, but that doesn't mean like something like Taste is is actually a very realistic play, for instance. But then you know we would do shows like Neverwhere. Um, we actually have done actually this this is this is one in in, in several uh, literary adaptations that we've done of genre stuff. We did Neverwhere, which is uh, um, Neil Gaiman. We we did Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is Philip K. Dick. Um, we did a play called Bill and Joan that was about uh, William S. Burroughs. You know, we we do a lot of stuff that kind of has. I don't know. I'll, I'll say a literary bent, mm -hmm. and you know, gory stories too. Gory stories, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Edward Gorey, and I think that that's the kind of work that we tend to specialize in. But we're not limited to that. You know, like we we don't just do dark stuff or just do light stuff. We 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 kind of we we try and hit you know different audiences. The show that we did previous to this was sort of a, a fairy tale for for grownups, and then you know before that was uh, a, a black box show that Alicia directed actually that was. Uh, you know, kind of about a very dysfunctional family. Um, you know, we, 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 we tend to play around in, in a lot of those ways. But, you know, I, I do kind of look at, at, like, what I was aiming for with this in terms of the kinds of productions we do are like the Neil Gaiman adaptation or the Philip K. Dick adaptation that we did. And, you know, to answer your, your question from earlier, though, like, that sort of is how you will find an audience because, you know, like, if I found out, and it's not an if, a few months ago there was a play called uh, Vonnegut USA, and, uh, and, and I absolutely had to go see it. You know, it was, as a huge Vonnegut fan, I will seek that stuff out. And, um, and so when you find something like that that has that much of a hook to it, it really, it really is kind of catnip. And we do look for stuff like that because you're right, it's hard to get people to come to the theater. And there's, you know, I've been told there's more theaters in L.A. than New York City, <laughs> but that's not more good theaters in L.A. than New York City. And so it's, it's hard to find the good stuff and you want to be the good stuff, but it's also just hard it's harder to do it it's harder to get people out there you know there are fewer full-time review theater critics these days so you have to do something that kind of rises above all of all of that noise you know to to get people out i was also going to say that when you go to the theater in new york it costs a fortune you have to really have a lot of money to go to the theater whereas you know coming to sacred fools it's like about the same amount of money that you'd spend going to a movie really you know which is i, I love that and i love the fact that the audience is young you know, and uh, you know, energetic and want new things. They want they want to see something they have never seen before. We'll say to that end. I think that we, um, as a company, our culture has tended to be willing to go a little bit edgy, and I think that the reason that we're attracted to kind of um, risky or difficult or um, you know, like this show is not easy to stage. <laughs> And I think it's a big risk, honestly, to to say we're going to try to put Vonnegut on the stage. We're going to try to um, you know, show this giant epic space adventure somehow magically on stage. I think that, that, that that's a calculated risk that we're taking, hoping that it will appeal to people and hopefully younger people who want to come out and see us do something that's a little bit um, dangerous, hopefully. Yeah, dangerous for us and terrifying because, like, it, there's a thousand ways to do it wrong, you know? Like, you, it's easy to screw this stuff up. There's so many moving parts. 
in a show like this. We have, you know, f- four different video projectors and a giant dog suit and and a <laughs> and, and, and a, an alien from Tralfamador that, you know, it's like everything has to be working exactly right or it looks it looks hokey and I don't like I don't want to be embarrassed in front of a Vonnegut fan and I and I want to live up to whatever Stewart's expectations of, you know, the, the best of what his work could be. I want to I want to give that to him, you know. You guys mentioned New York theater and I think when Reanimator the musical came out at the same time that that was debuting they were trying to mount the Spider-Man production <laughs> on Broadway and it seems like some of the stuff that that's being done on the big Broadway stages seems to be trying to imitate movies whereas Reanimator the musical and this seem to be embracing specifically what theater can do and to engage the audience and kind of like filling in that gap rather than trying to be you know flashy and have all this like no we can leave things a little rough around the edges and you guys fill in the details well yeah yeah i mean you have to we don't have the budget of you know spider-man turn off the dark and we're not trying to make a theme park ride here to me that what Stuart said is absolutely true you want the audience to kind of use their imagination and have and and have a, a wild ride that's a lot of fun that's not it's that isn't a movie. I want someone to come like I don't want someone to be like, oh, man, Captain America sold out. What am I going to do? Oh, maybe I'll go to the theater. That person doesn't exist. You know, like y- y- it's somebody who wants to come see something like this or who wants who wants a different experience. And, you know, so and and it does happen where someone's like, I saw this live show or I saw this play and you just got to see it. It'll blow your mind. It's completely unlike anything you've ever seen. And I mean, that's that that's kind of what you, what you have to do because yeah we don't we don't have enough money to make this into a theme park ride and I don't know if we did I don't know if it would be as engaging myself because it doesn't matter to a movie if there's an audience or not you know an empty seat is going to you know but uh, theater is all about that relationship between the audience and the actors and uh, you really you know it's the only art form I think where the audience c- helps create the art you know every night. And that every every audience is different, so every show is different. Every you know every performance is different, and that to me is that's the that's the kick. You mentioned there was another Vonnegut show going on. What is it for each of you that you think makes him stay so fresh and that keeps engaging an audience? You want to start? Gosh, you know I think it's um, what an imagination this guy's got. You know, uh, he also I mean. It's a real weird combination of cynicism and heart. You know, there's, there's uh, you know, the beginning of this, he's, he's saying, you know, how the guy says something about somebody up there likes me, and he's just sort of ridiculed for it. But the, but the play basically ends with that line, and it, you feel so differently about it when, it when you get there. And I think that's Vonnegut. I think it's that, that underneath that crusty, you know, been there, done that. I mean, this is a guy who went through World War II. You know, the stuff that he talks about in Slaughterhouse Five, where you know the, the Dresden is bombed and everything is completely destroyed. It's like World War Three, and he comes climbing out, and there's nothing there, and everybody's dead. Um, he lived through these things, but somehow managed to keep his, um, you know, his heart. You, you know, and and uh, that's that comes through in his stories. His stories are tough, um, but there's a, a, a tremendous humanity to them. Yeah, I would say, uh, like, while, I, while we were doing this, I've been rereading a lot of Vonnegut, and one of the things I did hit was Slaughterhouse-Five, because, as Stuart was telling me, kind of the thematic connections between 
Slaughterhouse-Five and Sirens of Titan. And when I read Slaughterhouse-Five, I was 18 years old, and I thought it was punk rock, and I thought it was anarchic, and I thought it was funny. And I reread it about two, three months ago, and I found it to be heartbreaking and emotional. And I started real piecing together that Vonnegut's stuff, a lot of it comes from his own PTSD or whatever it was. You know, even Breakfast of Champions, which I think is his funniest book maybe, or, or the one that is intended to be the funniest, is about a, guy, a Pontiac dealer going insane and, and about a, ter- a terrible violent thing. And Vonnegut talks about his own personal suicidal thoughts in that book and puts himself into the book. I think that there's something so... Uh, so present about his stuff. It's not like it's uh, it's not like it's a product of the '50s or the '60s or the '70s or the '80s. It's like you're in this guy's head and and experiencing life through his eyes in a way that I don't know of any other author who who ever did what Vonnegut did in that way that I've ever personally read. Um, and and it and it is weird too because you know reading it as a, as a teenager and then reading it as a man in my 40s, uh, it really is like two different sets of work. And I think that good work like that, like you keep seeing a different angle on it and it moves you in different ways than it did before. And this book was no exception. Although this book really did emotionally move me when I first read it, when I reread it, especially after talking to Stewart about you know his his uh, interactions with uh, with Kurt Vonnegut and how Vonnegut had you know kind of given him insight and he just had insight into the story that I never would have had in the first place you start realizing it is a commentary on war it is a commentary on on all of these on all there's so many themes that are running through it and the hardest part about like doing it as as a piece was trying to choose the ones that you're going to focus on because you could you could make this whole thing about determinism if you really wanted to i think he had a really refined bullshitometer and i think that the, the clarity of that and combined with the fact that he's brilliant and was able to really wield words in an incredibly poignant way. I think that those that mix of things means there are things about human condition and about what it means to be a person that are universal truths and that will always be true and have always been true. And I think Vonnegut saw right through all the BS and completely saw that stuff and that that is what he wanted to write about, what he wanted to capture. And so I think those things are timeless and they don't they aren't specific to a time or a specific culture. They're specific to being human. So I think we all connect to it um even if we can't like you know i'm not you know i'm not i'm not a guy who went to dresden and um you know got got captured and have had this world war ii experience at all and yet i find myself relating so strongly to his perspective and his voice and i think it's because he had an incredible uncanny ability to capture what it is to be a person do you have any specific memories of working with vonnegut about working on the script or anything in particular that you learned from him well, one of the things, you know, was right after the war in Vietnam it just ended. And, you know, I had been protesting against the war. You know, that was, you know, uh, Vonnegut said to me at one point, he said, you know, you really can't speak out against the war because you didn't go. <laughs> Which I thought was, you know, it's one of those things you never forget. You know, he said, you know, I, he said, I can talk about World War II, which everyone thinks is this great, glorious war. But I think it was bullshit. And I can say that because I was there. I was in the war. You know, I, my friends were dying around me. And uh, you can't, you know, you, you know, you can't say that about Vietnam because you didn't go. So is that the bullshitometer thing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. As always. That was Stuart Gordon, Ben Rock, and Alicia Conway Rock 
talking about the new Sacred Fools production of Kurt Vonnegut's The Sirens of Titan. It's currently running at Sacred Fools Theatre Company and runs through the first week of May. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Coming up next will be a discussion of Casablanca on its 75th anniversary and a discussion of nitrate film projection. Cinema Junkie is also a proud sponsor of Landmark Theater's Midnight Movies at the Ken Cinema. So make sure your late-night plans for the weekend include a movie at the Ken. Harry Potter and Paprika are coming up next. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.